0: Blog Talk
1: Radio Yo, this is your boy G-Ski Rocks And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women Of the world I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision But I want you to think about
2: And welcome to the 21st uh, day of February 2014. We have an exciting, exciting show today. I want to welcome my co-host on with me. Hey there, Thomas. Hey there, Melissa. How are you today? Hi.
1: What up? Hey.
2: Hi, everyone. So hey. well, I wanted to let you, know. <laughs> so did you let you know that I tried Skyping myself through BTR, and it did not work. So we've got some issues. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So I have to go back to the old technology. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I have been holding a phone receiver to my ear for the last umpteen months. As your host, that's why I sound so like I'm 10 million miles away. I know you, your your guys' audio is so much better than mine. I think it's just uh, our phone provider, our, our Internet service provider. But hopefully we'll have this figured out by next week. Yes, you sound great. <laughs> a shot from a well, the, game, a, shot at the, the game. a shot from KISS Cam already has more than a million views. I off. hear something. <laughs> is
0: that, that is something? not is
2: that me? That's really good. <laughs> I can hear your computer from here. Anyway, w- welcome to the show. You're listening to Pro Fly Fridays Radio. Thomas, will you please open our show up with our, our verse? And our prayer
3: Absolutely Deuteronomy Chapter 30 verse 19 I I record this day Against you That I have set before you Life and death Blessing and curse Therefore Life so that you and your seed might live Dear Heavenly Father In the mighty name of Jesus Christ Father, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to host Pro-Life Friday's radio and being a voice for the unborn, the those who cannot defend themselves, whether it's the unborn, those who are incapacitated or imprisoned, and justly, yes, Lord, we just thank you for another opportunity to be a voice. Father, we thank you for our guest that we have today, and we pray that you would bless him and bless the words that he speaks today. Bless the families of the hope, Lord God, Letitia and Melissa and their spouses and their beautiful kids. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Amen.
2: Well, hey. This is what, um, this is where we're going today. So if you had listened to, if you guys had, uh, anybody listening today, have re- listened and read, I, I meant read, uh, our show description, what we're going to talk about today in our first half hour is not going to seem connected at all to what I'm about to say, but it is. A couple of weeks ago, we had our guests, a good friend of mine, Jane Petrie from St. Louis, on with me. And let me give you a quick background on you know, how much she knows because she knows a heck of a lot of what we're going about, about to talk about. We have been dealing with and exposing this little-known fact that's growing across the country about the Girl Scout organization. And some of you are going to go, oh, no, you're, really, you're going after the Girl Scouts now. Look, they're little girls. I know. I was a Girl Scout leader. My daughter was in Girl Scouts, and having been a leader, I know the kind of the ins and outs of how the organization works, and my friend Jane Petrie knows it especially well. She was a Girl Scout when she was a young child all the way up through adulthood. She is a lifetime member, and this whole idea that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about boycotting Girl Scout cookies has kind of reached uh, the national media attention. And it has reached across the Internet to a lot of media sources, so much so that people are talking about it all over the place, which is a good thing. However, like anything, there's a lot of rumors about it, about what people are saying about the cookie boycott, uh, also called hashtag cookiecott. And we wanted to, I wanted to dispel a couple of things that people don't may not understand. It. Uh, nobody is accusing the Girl Scouts of giving money. First of all, the, the accusation is, well, the Girl Scouts are giving money to Planned Parenthood. No, that's not the issue. The Girl Scouts are not giving money to Planned Parenthood, and vice versa. Planned Parenthood is not being recorded as having given money mm-hmm. to the Girl Scout organization. So um, everybody getting all excited and saying, well, no, they're not giving money to each other, so you need to calm down, and, you know, what a ridiculous idea this cookie card is. Uh, That's not the issue. It's not the issue at all. But don't, don't think that those rumors... Aren't affecting people and what they write. So Melissa, today you have something you've been wanting to share for a, quite a number of weeks, and we haven't been able to get to it until today. But we are getting to it today, and that is an article, a blog post, actually, that you ran across that will is particularly instructive, and it leads in to what we're going to talk about with this whole cookie cut. So as we get okay. into that, we're going to tease out, we're going to tease out um, particularly my interest in, in, in it at the beginning, at the front end, is dispelling some of the rumors and fixing some of the assumptions that this blog post makes because of the Girl Scout cookie cot. So why don't you read uh, the relevant portions to us. Let's get started with that. <laughs> okay. And uh, we'll just kind of take it as it runs along. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We can kind of dissect this article um, or this blog post. It was actually written by a pastor, um, Perry Noble, and um, some may not be familiar with Perry Noble, but he is, here in Carolina particularly, he's very popular, and he's gained a lot of national notoriety as well. Um, He pastors a very large church um, in South Carolina, and um, he's connected to a number of different ministries and um, he has a a, a big influence. Um, he is um, definitely controversial. He he um, says uh, things that I think sometimes to uh, to fan flames, and uh, he is unapologetic in that sense. Um, but a very large uh, influence that he has on on a number of people. Um, but he wrote an article on February the third that he posted on his blog. And the title of the um, blog is Eating Cookies or Killing Babies, Do I Have to Choose? So the title along, obviously, you know, uh, being a pastor who was controversial, um, he uh, kind of went there <laughs> with his title um, <laughs> to bring some shock value. Um, right. So I'll just... Go ahead. I'm sorry? No, I said right. Okay. So I'm going to jump into it and um, – the first part, basically, he's 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 trying to give some disclaimers here. He says, you know, I know this title's shocking, um, but before we dive into this t- this subject, allow me to clarify or clearly identify where I stand on the issue. He says that number one, he's unapologetically pro life. Um, number two, he's never um, known uh, amid, uh, he, he's never voted for a pro life or for a pro choice candidate that he knows of. Um, he believes that human life begins at conception. Um, abortion Breaks His Heart, and the, he, um, and the last point here he shares is a very personal point. Um, he says that this issue is very personal to me as my parents strongly considered aborting me. Um, I found this out much later in life, and one of my best friends, Clayton King, was given birth rather than uh, being aborted by his teenage mother. So that's kind of the introduction that he gives. So he wants us to know that he is pro-life as he is um, diving into this issue um, about the cookie boycott, about the Girl Scout boycott. So any thoughts so far? Right. Okay. I'll just dive into the content here. He goes on to say, with all this in mind, I believe the recent decision by several churches and Christian organizations to align themselves with pro-life groups participating in, in Cookie Cot 2014, a boycott on Girl Scout cookies is one of the most ludicrous ideas I've ever seen. Um, He says, first of all, the Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies are my favorite, and I have already placed my order for this year. Um, And he goes on here also to say, some are actually arguing, um, as mentioned in the title, that if I buy a box of Girl Scout cookies, then I am basically murdering unborn babies because the Girl Girl Scouts supposedly give money to Planned Parenthood, a pro-choice group. The insanity of that argument is unreal. And I'll let you, Letitia, explain what the boycott is all about before I kind of stop at some of this as well. Right. Yes. Um, right. His first his first accusation is that Girl Scouts is giving money to Planned parenthood. That's what he's heard. That is a rumor, and that's the one I addressed. Nobody is saying those that actually those who are saying this are making a mistake it's not true the girl scouts are not supposedly giving money to planned parenthood they're not giving money to planned parenthood that is not the problem the problem is the girl scouts is working with planned parenthood to promote pro abortion programs and pro abortion literature And and population control measures, both here in the United States and other countries. The Girl Scouts organization's international arm, uh, called the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts, or WAGGS, sorry, WAGGGS, or WAGs, as they are known, it is the international arm of the Girl Scouts that is the most active at partnering and working with organizations like Planned Parenthood and other population control and pro-abortion organizations to promote people and ideas and pro-abortion, a pro-abortion agenda on an international level, here, here and on the international level. That is what the problem is. Now, I have kind of detailed this before um, on Facebook from our Facebook account, but let me explain it to you uh, in detail over this program, saying this is how it works. The entire Girl Scouts USA organization is built on top of the backs of little girls and adult volunteers. There are daily, uh, I'm sorry, there are annual dues that every girl. And every adult volunteer, that means every troop leader and every volunteer that gives any time that has any contact with a Girl Scout whatsoever, even being in the same room, has to clear a background check. It's one of those things. Part of that, they have to pay dues to the Girl Scout organization every year. That money goes directly to GSUSA, Girl Scouts USA. And every troop has an annual donation that must be given to that international group, WAGS. So they have money going directly to GSUSA and money directly going to WAGS every year. So what does this have to do with cookies? Good question. The GSUSA organization receives a royalty on every box of cookies sold from the bakeries they contract with to bake the cookies. They receive a royalty. The girls, girl troops, however, only receive 15% of the proceeds of every box of cookies sold. So say in Missouri here, uh, each girl scout, each box of cookies sells for about $3.50. 15% 15% amounts to a little less than $0.50 cents per box. The other $3 goes to the local council. Local Girl Scout counsel, councils have the discretion, as, as, all, as all of them do, as all the, as the uh, national organization does, it has the discretion of what to publish for their council members and who to work with. And there have been many councils across the United States that have chosen to promote pro-abortion literature and participate in pro-abortion and pro-population control events with other groups such as Planned Parenthood. So it is not so much a matter of money that is exchanging between Planned Parenthood and Girl Scouts. It is a matter of aligning ideology and participating in the same events, promoting the same message. Abortion? Hey, that's awesome. So that is the main problem. So the cookie portion comes to you all about funding. Funding for your local council and then funding for the national organization and the international organization of the Girl Scouts. On all three mm-hmm. levels, girls are involved, and all the money comes from their efforts.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: if you were to ask me, the issue is not, so, not just about cookies, but people who are participating in the Girl Scout organization altogether are contributing their dollars and their labor, because no one's getting paid except those that are salaried workers for the Girl Scouts you know, making money off the backs of the little girls, no one's getting paid. Girls aren't aren't really getting paid, personally. Volunteers aren't getting paid. Every cent uh, that out of that 15% is uh, going to some organization to pump out literature that is pro-abortion, pro-leftist, pro-damaging feminism girls and they're trying to sell it to them as uh, positive outreach look every, all the you the, the new uh, literature and I've seen this myself so I know what I'm talking about uh, has mm-hmm. a big huge promotion inside it's not it's let me let me tell you it's not your grandmother's Girl Scout program anymore it isn't okay. all the liter- all the programming changed in 2011 and in the run-up to 2011, because I saw it. It was when I was uh, most active, and I was looking at all the changes, and when they rolled out officially the new curriculum in September of 2011, the first printings of all the material had links to sites like Media Matters. Uh, They promoted people who are um, active in pro-left feminism, pro-abortion feminism, and recommending to the girls, they're still doing this, recommending to girls that, hey, these are your role models, you can be like them. And just this year, they just named Wendy Davis as their Woman of the Year. Right. And we've talked about we've talked about Wendy Davis quite a bit on this program, and how she doesn't help women at all. In fact, she makes a horrible, horrible name for what positive role models should be. Uh, mhm. So. This is about how the Girl Scout organization is, has taken a very strong political, ideological and moral turn to the left, and mm-hmm. the cookies are the cookie cot is one way for people to say, "I'm not going to support an organization that." supports Planned Parenthood in this way, partners with them, works with them, promotes the same ideas as them with my money anymore. Right. And that's what the cookie cot is about. So um, unfortunately, you know, it it takes that long to explain it. So I hope that people can understand that that's where – this, that's what the situation is about, and, and stop accusing people of saying, hey, you know, you're not giving money to Planned Parenthood, so, you know, this cookie cod idea is, is ridiculous. No, it's not ridiculous, but we should understand it for what it really is and not what all the rumors about it are. Right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously, a Noble um, doesn't understand um, what cookie Cod is about, <laughs> Which is why he um should have refrained from writing this article because it's 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 really horrible as far as the logic um goes and um the ideas that he's putting forth but just I mean to start when he says here um that some are arguing that if he buys a box of girl scout cookies that he is basically murdering unborn babies, <laughs> um, a bit extreme. <laughs> I mean, who yeah. who's saying that? You know, this is it's just a straw man caricature of our position, which is we're just holding um, these organizations responsible for those that they support, for the ideologies that they are um, putting forth into um, the, our society and into the world, and we're just we're not we're not going to support um, any measures that um, go to killing children, um, innocent children, and so um this is just a very oversimplification of the issues, and it, purposely he he does this over and over throughout the article um but I have no idea who he's saying is saying who he who he's referring to as stating that um buying a, box, a box of bot of cookies um is the equivalent of murdering a, a baby um It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's a complete slippery slope. It doesn't follow. Nobody has said that, and it doesn't follow. Not at all. Um, He does go on, however, to say that basically if we are going to participate in cookie cot, um, the logical conclusion is that everyone who calls themselves a Christian needs to go to their pantry, make sure all the food they have was produced and packaged by Christian uh, companies who fully support a, a conservative agenda, um, because if not, um, then it would be hypocritical to be involved in this movement, which, is, again, it's just, oh, it's, just, the logic is horrible, and it's just a, a complete oversimplification. Um, obviously, every company that we deal with on a daily basis, we, can, we don't know if they're Christian or not. I don't know if my energy company is Christian, you know, if the head is Christian. I don't, that, that's not right. going to stop me from getting power and electricity. Um, we're talking about um, child murder here. We're talking about um, um, promoting an agenda of child murder and and anti-family values. So it's it's a lot more, um, a lot deeper than he's making the issue here. (laughs) Right. We know that Planned Parenthood is being promoted and worked with by the Girl Scouts. We know that. It isn't right. that um, uh, I need to find out if my power company is involved in political things that I don't agree with. Uh, that right. is, you know, that is something different because we know the fact that, I mean, if Planned Parenthood's promoting abortion luring people into thinking that abortion is empowering to women and instead they're killing children and maiming women and damaging them psychologically for probably the rest of their life. If they don't get help for that, uh, that would be a- an association for, for that, from the Girl Scouts mm-hmm. to that, would be completely objectionable. And I need to get electricity for my home. I do not need to buy cookies. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a, that's a luxury that we can forego, or you can buy another brand of cookies, you know, from the store. <laughs> um, exactly. I have I have a choice. If I had a choice of uh, power companies to choose from that that um, um, I I prefer, I think I would exercise a choice like that. But I don't really. I don't. Right. That's a completely different industry. Put screens here. Um, and you know, we the thing is, we hear this rhetoric from the pro-choice movement all the time, and it's it's sad when it's someone within our within our own Christian community that's doing this. Um, right. He he goes on to say, um, I'm not, I can't read everything, because it's really it's uh long and silly, but um, he goes on to say if this is a stance that we're going to take on these issues, then the safest thing to do is to take all of our money out of the banks, drive to cave, raise our children in the version of the utopia we create. And beg Jesus to come back ASAP. Um, yeah. Again, <laughs> um, just totally logical. Um, right. but we're not we're not uh, advocating withdrawing from society and taking our monies out of the banks and going into caves and hiding from the world and just you know sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back while we do nothing. We're 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 fighting. We're fighting for babies. We're fighting for our for our culture. We're fighting for our children. We're fighting for the growth in the Girl Scouts organization. Um, again, we're, we're trying to save lives and to promote um, pro-life and um, family values. So we're not retreating, right. as, as he's um, accusing us of. In actuality, he's the one who's choosing to retreat by basically saying, let's just throw our hands in the air. And right. th- that's uh yeah, because, just because, because he likes thin mint cookies. You know, uh-huh well. I, I just I'm looking at this, and because I have spent some time looking at the alternatives, hey, the time it takes for somebody to to find track a Girl Scout down and say, "I want some a box of Finland cookies right. you could have gone to a, your local grocery store and yeah. found a comparable look a comparable knockoff. I spent time looking for them online, and there are dozens of people who say, "Hey, here are a bunch of different cookies uh, baked by Keebler Elves." You know, I'm all for your (laughs) Keebler Elves that are meant to be in competition with the Girl Scout cookies. Hey, give them a try! This is not, right. you know, I I can't I can't agree with. Hey, if you don't like Girl Scout cookies, that means you have to. What is what did he say? Give up your furniture? Withdraw to a cave? Oh yeah, furniture, uh, everything. Yeah, your your car, uh, everything. One, yeah. For one thing, we're talking about cookies, uh, in right. a completely volunteer organization for for girls. Right. It's a completely volunteer organization. They exist because we we allow it to exist. They exist because we buy cookies. If everybody stopped buying cookies, the Girl Scout organization would not exist. Right, exactly. Period. It's a totally volunteer organization selling cookies that you also volunteer to buy. It's not a big deal to say no to that. It's not a big deal Mm -hmm. to say no to that. Not at all. Not at all. Um, I mean, so many of us have, you know, through this cookie economy I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, we hear this again from the pro-choice physician um, a lot of times. You know, well, you, you're pro-life, but you're not adopting all the babies in Africa, and you're not, you know, all these sort of um, things <laughs> that we have to do to prove that we're pro-life, you know? Um You know what again, I don't mean to take us off the, the beaten path right now, but I really I'm starting to get very annoyed when people make that argument saying, you know, if you're okay. pro life then why don't you adopt babies from, you know, here and there and everywhere? Well, yeah. does that mean the converse is true? If I were pro abortion then I don't have a responsibility to adopt anybody? Is that is that how Basically. it
0: goes?
2: So Basically. I you know, oh, yeah. if I just became pro choice then I can <laughs> Take my hands off of the world and, and wash my hands of all the the abuses that children suffer, and say, "Hey, I pro-choice, and I don't yeah, have to I to that. this to be aborted, so I don't have to do anything." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, yeah, you ask me which position, just on the face of that, I would take. I would take the one that has more responsibility, even though I cannot adopt every child under the sun. Well if you if you if you could if you adopted every child that needed a home how could you fight in any way for pro life causes like you wouldn't you would be stretched so thin in every way um you couldn't be effective at at what we're at what we're doing so it's right yeah, it's and, and the point is that that one doesn't have anything to do with the other
1: Absolutely one does yeah doesn't have
2: anything to do with the other all right? Yeah, it's just, um, again, it's just trying to stream. But he he goes on. He tries to bring scripture into this somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not surprising. Um, uh, Jesus did not come into the world. to get in into the world. Um, he didn't come uh, for the purpose of condemnation. Um, he says, I'm, I'm quite sure he hasn't asked his followers to do it on his behalf. As a friend of mine said, recently we've been called to shine the light into a dark world. Not shake a fist at it. Um, one of the biggest problems with some people who vehemently oppose abortion is they have never sat down and lo- locked eyes with the woman who has had an abortion. And um, again... That's a, I, that's a caricature if I've ever heard one. I mean, yes. really. <laughs> to accuse... I mean, I have looked many women in the eye who have had abortions. And, I, and what is that supposed to change my mind? Right. Right. I'm not so yeah, sure can't... why. Yes. Yeah. And they're not to mention all the, the post abortive men and women who are in the pro life movement. So they themselves have gone through the pain of abortion. And yes, they've locked they've locked out with a woman or a man that's had abortion because they look in the mirror every day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I I don't understand what the point that he's trying to make is that every woman who has had an abortion before will automatically take uh, the side sympathetic to abortion, or that because I know somebody who has had an abortion, I should be sympathetic toward abortion itself. Uh, I think this is a real failure to separate the act from the person. You know, we sympathize greatly with women who have had abortions, but we don't say just because you've had one and I know you, that means it's okay. Right. Yeah, he. Um, it's it's so I, more than anything throughout this article, what what I see him doing is um, just taking a shot at pro-lifers. He has some type of axe to ground against pro-lifers. Um, he says, um, you know, the sin category. We just he says we want to point out the faults and failures of others. Um, we don't. We're we're not concerned with why a woman chooses to have an abortion. Um, he goes on to say. Um, Abortion is an issue that runs so much deeper than a surface-level boycott. And, again, (laughs) Ah. um, oversimplification, we did not say, we're not saying that this boycott is the answer to solve the problem of abortion. Right. We're saying that this is a um, solution in trying to restore a culture of life um, to our young people. Um, But... To simplify, as we're equating the fight for life with a boycott of cookies, is again just very sim- um, simplistic and a caricature. And it is it be- begging the question. He's he's saying that it's a surface level boycott. That's what we're, that that's the point of debate. Is this really is this important or not? And he's just assuming that it's surface level without giving any type of explanation for why he feels that it is. We, on the other hand, do not feel like it's surface level. We feel like this is something worth fighting for. So, any thoughts to add to that, Leticia Yeah. Well, I'm I'm thinking, and I'm looking over this article, or this blog post myself, and thinking to myself, this is a pastor. And I know. what happened to pastor? Well, I mean, what <laughs> happened to pastors who can, who who only spoke from? A point of—I'm not even sure I know the word—from uh, uh, the side of authority on this for themselves, where he's—he's mm-hmm. he's apologizing. He's almost apologizing for what he's saying. He's saying, "I'm personally pro-life. I, you know, I, I think yeah. abortion is wrong, and I think abortion yeah. is horrible. And and I, you know, I'm personally pro-life, but I'm professionally pro-choice. Uh, I'm not saying that he's saying that, but that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, and. Well, And he's deflecting and he's avoiding the real issue and talking all about cookies when Mm -hmm. the issue is not about the cookies themselves. The reason the boycott is going on is because of the association between the Girl Scout organization and Planned Parenthood. You really ought to be talking about that association, not about the cookies. And I think... I'm, I'm pretty sure, any normal human being can see that that's that would that's where the issue lies. So that he spends right. so much time talking about a boycott of cookies leads me right. to think he, he doesn't really want to deal with the issue that is that is the real issue. Right. Yeah. Um. And this is probably the most inflammatory part of the article too. Um. He actually goes as far here to say that, um, uh, okay, um, Christians were wounding people but by shouting at them words of condemnation. I have no idea where he's getting this from. Um, I don't know where, what his sources are. Um, with our attitudes of hate and disdain, uh. <laughs> the people who desperately need the healing of Jesus are actually being pushed away from him because the people who are supposed to be his hands and feet are slapping them. Not accepting them, and again, I don't, I don't know where he's getting yeah. any of this from. Um, especially if, if we're dealing with a cookie cut, what, what does cookie, what does boycotting cookies have to do with any of this that he's referring to? Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, <laughs> "This is um, the really inflammatory part. It is really sad when Planned Parenthood and the Girl Scouts are actually acting more Christ-like." And many of the people who are taking aim at them through this boycott. Yeah, I'm shaking my head here going, I, I don't know where you're getting this. <laughs> oh, but uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold to say that. You're right. Yeah, Planned Parenthood who kills children, 31,000 every year, They are. he's associating them with being Christ-like. My question is, what does he... As a pastor, what is his criteria for christ likeness because if Planned Parenthood fits that in any way then i've I've just totally misread my Bible, and maybe I need to read his version um, to 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 actually um use the the adjective christ like with an or with the number one abortion provider in our in our country um mm-hmm. is absolutely um Inflammatory. It, it's not. It's unacceptable at all for for anything for anyone to say that. That is just. That's beyond me. <laughs> um, and he he doesn't qualify that with. Well, how are they Christ-like? In what sense? Um, it, are they supposedly Christ-like? Again, I don't know what his criteria for Christ-likeness is based on that statement alone. So, I, I just I don't I don't know how he's right. arriving at this. Well, maybe our uh, guest will uh, for today will can, can enlighten us. He's been a pastor for many years. Uh, he has mentored other pastors that I personally know. Uh, that that is a pastor of the church that I attend. Um, let me see if I can get him on the line. Let's go to a very very short break while I get him on the line, and uh, we'll come back and ask him. We will ask him uh, all about that. So. Hang in there, yes. we'll be right back. <laughs> Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Hey, just a quick announcement, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Pro-Life Fridays Radio. We are making some exciting moves here in the next couple of weeks, starting in the beginning of March, uh, our first Friday in March. We're going to go through this wonderful thing called a name change. And it's very exciting. We are moving to a new name. Called True Life Fridays, spelled T R U Life Fridays instead of Pro Life Fridays. We are so excited for the change. So stay tuned as we roll that out in the next couple of weeks, and uh, enjoy enjoy the last couple of weeks of official Pro Life Fridays before we make that name change. So before we get started, um, I have a friend on the line who has a question. Hey there, Randy. Yeah. Hi, Letitia. Hey, you had a question for us.
4: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having a program about the pro-life issue. Uh, We are a culture of death, and we need light and hope in this culture. Um, And I was just amazed listening to about the issue with with the Girl Scouts. Uh, My wife used to be one years ago, and that would be an unthinkable thing, that they would be supporting an industry Mm -hmm. like this, which is, so mm-hmm. antithetical to anything that Girl Scouts do, you know. They, they are, are an organization to equip girls uh, with character and good skills and virtues. My question is, how on earth have we drifted so deeply into mm-hmm. these kinds of, of issues that we're now taking the very kids that we mold and shape for the future and we're giving them alternative philosophies, that are just deadly. Why are we doing this? I guess this is my question.
2: Are you asking mm. about the Girl Scout organization in particular, yeah. or our culture the in general? Girl Scout
4: organization. How, how do they? How they get involved in something like this? Why would they do this when their their job is to a, to, to, to mold and shape characters and, and virtues
0: right.
4: uh, for young girls preparing for life? Why would they do this? It, it just it boggles the mind. Well, I guess what I'm asking.
2: The, the short answer is, I did my homework when I decided to become involved in the Girl Scouts a few years ago, and it was a very short stint through the Girl Scouts because, as I saw the the trend was uh, getting to this point, I jumped ship because i was like, I I don't think I can I can be a part of this. And how I when I got in, involved and became a, a a volunteer at first, and my daughter was involved. Uh, I did my homework. I basically read up on what they were doing, and basically in 2005 they hired a battery of child psychologists, educational experts, um, uh, education, uh, what do they call these, theorists, educational theorists, Mm -hmm. basically a bunch of uh, academics to come and rewrite their Girl Scout curriculum and to give a sense of direction to the Girl Scouts organization through the curriculum that it didn't have before. Now, the reason, uh, they, now I can, we can only say the reason they wanted to do this was to move in a leftward direction. But prior to that, it was more of a troop-led effort. Your troop leader and the girls decided, you know, I want to do this, I want to earn badges, I want to go camping, I want to do this, I want to do that. Well, now instead of being completely troop-led and troop-oriented, it is now curriculum-oriented. There's there's no other way to do this. There's no other way to do this than to lay it on in the literature on all age levels to push an ideology. And they start young, they start with the ages 5 and 6-year-olds to start getting them uh, prepared. For the upper grades, which the literature there and the curriculum there teaches, all kinds of things such as um, socialist, social justice, uh, hyper environmentalism, and and this sense of needing to owe the world something because you live in a highly developed country, and that has this idea that Greenpeace. Promoted that we're raping the earth In order to uh, have the technology That we're doing and that we're exploiting people That kind of ideology ideology Is kind of laid in In stages up to the point Where they are seniors in high school And this began In 2005 With them hiring a lot of These educational theorists And child psychologists So the Fruit of this uh, Shift in Direction came about in 2011. It trickled in in the years prior to that, but they had their official launch of the new curriculum in 2011. And I think since then, people have gotten wise to this new Direction, and that's where we've come to this point where people are calling for a boycott of the cookies.
4: Mm-hmm. It just sounds like they're recruiting them It's like they're uh, molding and shaping their minds And it seems like that's the, those, these are the issues they're involved in They don't have any conservative issues they're involved in uh, They don't have the other side of the coin The pro-life uh, issue and what pro-life are saying about this It seems like that they are pretty much dedicated to a leftist, socialist kind of agenda for these girls
2: Mm-hmm. Right, and it depends on who's leading the, leading the charge here. The entire Girl Scout uh, Council organ, the organization, those that are salaried employees, the CEO and the head of every council um, are, are pretty much they're hired from the top down, and they hire the people well, who want about, to hire. What about
4: parents that have conservative children in, in Girl Scouts that have their minds already, you know, they're conservative thinking young girls right. maybe yeah. at that age? I mean, how do they deal with that? whole agenda then? If you're a Girl Scout, you're a family, you're pro-life, you're conservative, what, what, what do they do? Did they just leave or, or what?
2: Uh, for the moment, yeah, that's your only option, uh, unless you can get hired on uh, some way and become the CEO of the Girl Scouts, and maybe you can change the direction of the, the curriculum and everything, but this has been kind of in a slow-moving engine for the last decade. And I, I don't see how anybody can change anything without voting with their feet first. Okay, thanks. The, thanks for your
4: time. Now,
2: the, the, now that this is, brings us to the cookie pot, the entire Girl Scout organization exists on the backs and labor of little girls, and the only way to counter this is to starve the organization of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the solution, um, financially speaking, for them anyway.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, hang in there, Randy. Um, I know that you wanted to to listen to our guest as we bring him on. Apologies for the late, late, late start for that. I wanted to bring my, uh, my guest on, who I met a few months ago, when the film It's a Girl, and it's about female genocide, Gender side. I'm mean, I'm sorry. Came in team to St. Louis, and uh, he was part of the audience, and I got to meet him there. He's the, the president, the director. Yes, president is the right word. Of Churches for Life, and I was delighted to find out that Churches for Life is based out of St. Louis. So please welcome my guest, Doug Murphy.
5: Hello, welcome. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys?
2: All right. Hey. I um, am very excited to have you on. As have wanting to have you on for, for a long time now, and I finally was able to get this nailed down and have you come onto our program and share with us all the great wisdom that you have. I know that you have. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs>
5: well, good. So I'm excited to be here. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Right, so you've been listening to what we've been talking about. Um, first of all, do you have anything to say about what what is being – not so much the cookies, <laughs> which is we could go on about that, but the issue separate from that is uh, how a pastor deals with that. And I know you've been a pastor and you've mentored other pastors. Um, where What are we supposed to think about this? If our clergy and our, our pastors are – are taking one point of view, and we disagree with that. I mean, how are we supposed to understand their point of view?
5: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know the point of view of all pastors and clergy. Um, I'm sure there's different points of view out there. I guess, you know, my what I'm going to, you're going to hear me say this a lot today while we're interviewing, but um, to me, the first lens through which we process anything like this is obviously the gospel. And uh, we had a caller earlier who asked, you know, how how could our society drift into this place where the Girl Scouts are doing what they're doing? And, you know, through the lens of the gospel, we first of all see it as a mirror. It reflects on ourselves. And we say, you know, why would this be surprising actually? What, What is so surprising about this? Because in your heart, in my heart, and in every member of the Girl Scouts' hearts, the gospel tells us that we have a darkness and an evil that lurks there that can, you know, uh, flare out at any moment in any way. So the Bible is real clear in the gospel that there is nothing surprising about evil and darkness in the world. The one thing about being a Christian is that we really aren't easily surprised. But also, as we prepare to uh, kind of reflect and engage in a conversation about the Girl Scouts or any other, you know, group or person who has a worldview that's different than ours, we first are humbled by the gospel because, A, we see our own hearts as being dark and capable of great evil, and, B, we see that we have a great Savior who has had tremendous grace and mercy on us through no merit of our own, So when we engage, however we engage, when we do engage, we engage from a place of great humility and Mm -hmm. respect and uh, gentleness, knowing that we're as frail as anybody else. So my first response is a response of the heart, which kind of is transcendent over any issue in how we engage it uh, and where it may show up. It's a gospel-centered response. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, again, we look at, you know, all the callers, anybody who might call into this show who's irate or angry or has a question, the first question I'd have for them, as I'd have for myself or anybody in the congregation, is, okay, gang, why don't we first just get re- re-contacted to the gospel for ourselves and understand that um, the gospel empties our pockets of all the rocks that we've collected to throw there and now we can engage in a conversation from a place of humility, which addresses, obviously, addresses real issues with truth, but in the context of grace, which is what the world, frankly, is aching for. So there's part of a response to your, to your question.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how's that? Um, tell us how, then, just generalize with us, too. What we were going to talk about is how do we deal with the abortion question in church um, I can tell you personally that I go to a church where um, a pastor like Terry Noble um, Maybe not mm-hmm. as vocally and caricaturizing as he does But will say I am personally against abortion I don't. I think abortion is wrong, I'm against it but I don't feel like I should say anything out loud because we have women in our church that may have had abortions.
5: Right. And, uh, you know, every church is unique and every church uh, leader or pastor is unique. So I, I guess I can share our approach to Nourishing churches as gospel-driven champions of life. That's our mission, is to nourish churches as gospel-driven champions of life, to help them grow in their ability to articulate a worldview of life uh, that's gracious and truthful, and to engage their congregations, to equip them. We've been doing that for as a ministry founded in 2008, and God's really blessed what we're doing. He's expanding what we're doing. so. I've had a lot of frustration and also a lot of success, a lot of joy in that process, so I can just share our experience. And the first thing I would say is um, that each pastor is, that I know, that I've experienced this journey with, is, is yearning for some sort of relationship to work through the deeper question, what would happen if he did say something about abortion in his congregation? And also the underlying issues that he may be thinking about and be, being sensitive to in his congregation. So, first of all, for example, I don't know any pastor who gets into the pastoral ministry for the sole purpose of speaking against abortion. I wouldn't even say that's a legitimate reason to get into the pastoral ministry. I would say, though, that a legitimate reason to get in the pastoral ministry is to... Um, to unfold the beauty of the gospel to both lost people and saved people and to help them work through all the ramifications of the gospel so one of the errors that quote-unquote pro-life people make when they approach pastors is they they kind of pluck the, the abortion issue out of context, out of the gospel context and uh, in so doing it becomes more of an issue-driven discussion rather than a gospel-centered discussion so when we approach pastors, for example, we obviously resonate with them and they resonate with us because we major in the gospel, and the gospel is the message of rescue. So the way a conversation with a pastor goes, and I'm simplifying it for the sake of time, it goes something like this. When I meet a pastor, I say, so, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Doug Murphy with Churches for Life, and I've met you, and this person's introduced us. So I understand that we both believe the gospel. Is that right? And of course, they say yes, obviously. And I say, you know, well, what is the gospel? And we explain and talk about the plain old gospel. You know that it's a message where people were in peril. They they had no ability to rescue themselves. Um, They were in grave peril. And a great and strong rescuer who was full of love and strength and power sought out those people in peril, intervened for them. He died in the process, and in so doing, he rescued them. And that is the plain gospel of Jesus Christ that we sing about and celebrate and proclaim and preach and teach week in, week out as pastors in churches. That's the crown jewel of ministry. That's the major of majors in ministry. So we start with that. That is the main issue. But then from that platform, that base of common passion, understanding, keeping the main thing the main thing, I ask another question. I say, so, We preach, we proclaim, we sing, we celebrate this gospel week after week. So what does it look like to live this gospel out? What does it look like for us as pastors to equip our people, God's people really, to love and believe this gospel, but also to reflect it in all kinds of practical ways in and through their lives? What does it mean, as we like to say, to live as rescued rescuers, gospel-centered rescuers? And that's where we get into much deeper conversations about, well, who's in peril? I mean, mm-hmm. everybody's in peril in the whole world from the wrath of God outside of Christ, right? Everybody's in spiritual peril. So beyond that, who's in physical peril? Well, you've got the unborn, and, and they're in peril. That sounds a lot like our spiritual peril, right? I mean, they're, they're defenseless. They're, they're being assaulted. They can't defend themselves. They need a rescuer from outside who's powerful and strong and comes to intervene for them. Um, to rescue them, to save them. And you know that it sounds exactly like the gospel. So once we establish the gospel paradigm in this relationship with pastors, the abortion issue and anything life-related, it becomes a gospel issue. It's no longer an abortion issue. It's a gospel issue. For a pastor who preaches the gospel, who loves the gospel, who understands the gospel as a message of rescue, to not then address and apply that gospel to all the multiple places in our culture where death and peril is prevalent is to not preach the gospel. So we take it out of that context of you know, issue-driven, whether it's human trafficking, or well, why don't you talk about human trafficking? Why don't you talk about abortion? Why don't you talk about euthanasia? I mean, those are all important, but um, we, need to, we need to first focus on the gospel and build that common bond which provides a platform for a good conversation furthermore. Does that does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I, and I totally agree. And I think that a lot of pastors would say the same thing. I don't know that that's where the uh, disagreement lies. I, I do hear a lot of, uh, instead I hear the opposite. Um, you know, let's just focus on the gospel and not move beyond that to the application of how to love our most innocent neighbors Um the best. I sometimes I hear a lot of, well, let's just focus on the gospel, right? And not talk well, about well, you know, um,
5: in my experience in every church I've been in, including you know what I might call liberal churches, churches that not, don't necessarily even believe the gospel, the orthodox gospel. You're always going to find places where they're living out the gospel by common grace. I mean, you'll find in the most liberal churches. I know one in my community that they they take they take old bicycles, they refurbish them, and they give them to uh, kids through a ministry program. Okay, so they're not saving children's lives, but they're doing something that's redemptive. Mm -hmm. So, um, no pastor really, and I don't know of any church, and there may be one, but I don't know of one where they're not reflecting the gospel somehow. It, It is, though, that they may be selective in how they choose to, you know, reflect the gospel. So, When life-affirming people approach a pastor and, you know, we're thinking in terms of life issues, it's helpful to build these common bridges and, you know, start from a place of agreement and say, wow, I can see that our church is living out the gospel over here. I can see that we're living out the gospel over here. I can see that we're living out the gospel in this way by equipping our people in this ministry and in that ministry. So how can I help you, Mr. Pastor, how can we discuss how to build a team at this church that can help our church live out the gospel in this area? So, um, you know, there are these a bunch of old adages that are just plain old vanilla principles when you approach a pastor um, that apply to almost anything. And if, if you'd like, I can share just some plain old hints and ideas about approaching a pastor Uh, One of them is, yeah, you, 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 um, you go to a pastor and you, first of all, value that pastor as a person and build a relationship with that pastor. Most people who approach pastors are approaching them either because they have a need or a complaint or they have an agenda. I mean, I don't know the last time you or I called our pastor just to say, hey, everything's going great in my life. I just wanted you to know. (laughs) <laughs> Most people don't That's call pastors point. for that reason. That's
0: a very so good pastors point. are
5: very used to, and therefore, especially seasoned pastors are very aware, and wary, and somewhat guarded, understandably, about you know someone making an appointment. So when you go in to talk to a pastor about life issues, and you lead off with you know some some reflection on. Something good going on in the church and something that you're excited about going on in the church and something you appreciate and something that you both are passionate about, that that automatically puts a whole different feel to that conversation, that meeting. It takes it out of the out of the um, the world of, okay, here's another parishioner who's angry because I'm not doing x, y, and z. And they want me to do X, Y, and Z, so I'm automatically in defense mode. So you go in, you establish some of that common ground, and, and then um, as you begin to talk about the gospel, you begin to talk about, well, um, I have some ideas on how actually we can maybe build a team or a ministry that could actually serve you and help you and the leaders and, and the entire church to you know think more deeply and be more engaged in this aspect of enjoying and living out the gospel toward the unborn, toward moms in crisis pregnancies, toward couples struggling with infertility, st- you know, embryos, and so on. Mm-hmm. Because very seldom do people, again, come to pastors with solutions or offerings of help. And so right away, I've been in meetings with pastors and, you know, especially seasoned ones who've sat down with me and they didn't know me very well, and first words out of their mouth, um, were okay what do you want from me Now that's rather blunt and, uh, But I get it Because I've, I've been a staff pastor
0: mm-hmm. And
5: when I respond with Well actually I don't really want anything from you I actually just want to get to know you a little bit better I want to understand kind of what's, what some of your passions are Things you care about And I want to talk about the gospel and maybe there could be some way that I, I could serve you in, the pa- in your passions, in the passions for this church. And as I've said that, I- I've had pastors fall off their chairs because <laughs> that's something they never experience. So for some reason, you know, it's just like it, nothing's new under the sun, right? Moses and Aaron and David and Joshua and, and Jesus and Paul, all these leaders, it's so easy to throw rocks at our leaders. And not to see them as plain old human beings that have weaknesses and frailties just like us. They have, mm-hmm. they have strength as well. We go at them as, as human beings, as fellow pilgrims. They have a place of leadership. We give them honor and respect, and we seek to serve them so their job may be a joy. I'm not saying, though, that you may do all these things, and it's a magic formula. You may still run into a roadblock where a pastor is just absolutely unwilling unwilling to address what he sees as, you know, political or controversial issues from the mm-hmm. pulpit. And, and there's, a, there's a different strategy to deal with that. In my experience, that's generally with the kind of folks I work with and develop relationships with, it's relatively rare. However, mm-hmm. in people that I know that don't really practice some of the things I've just mentioned, the basic things I've mentioned, they tend to run into that resistance because they haven't taken time to build that relationship.
0: Right. So. Right.
5: Yeah, churches are an interesting, um, and pastors are an interesting species.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, how does you know? Coming from it from a non-pastoral point of view, um, right. I, I've always wanted to know. You know, and I think you've spoken a lot to this, how to get to know your pastor and how to encourage him to take a different direction and perhaps in this process overcome some of the fear of addressing particularly uh, abortion. I think that the statistics, though I think all the pastors know the statistics, at least one in four, perhaps one in seven Women have had abortions. Uh, Therefore, it's a high probability that most of the the, of the women that are attending on a week-to-week basis at church, some of them have had abortions. And are we? I'm wondering. The longer when and the question is now you've asked you've answered kind of the how, but when should we begin to? I guess approach this because the longer I, the longer we sit on this, the more those women who have undergone abortion and have, have experienced loss through that are still hurting, and still in need of uh, reconciliation. If they've never dealt with this, if they have, they don't go to a church that is very open about that, and we have fearful pastors who don't want to approach the subject you know for for their right. own for their own fears out of their own fears when right. would be a good and, time
5: to do this yeah i think that's a it's a wonderful question and it, it does not have a simple answer but let me just give you a little scenario let's suppose that i am this pastor and you approach me and you say you know pastor i really think you know we need to begin talking about these kinds of things, so on and so forth. And my response is, yes, I agree. Next Sunday, I'm going to dedicate the entire worship service to the subject of life and abortion. Now, here's the question. If I do that, and let's say I'm a pastor of a church of 500 people, and if one in four women in my church has had an abortion, I have just set myself up for fielding up to... Two hundred phone calls on Monday morning <laughs> from, from women and men who've been affected or touched by abortion who want counseling or who angry they're angry or whatever else now by, by saying this i 'm not saying that that's an excuse not to, to say it what, what I'm trying to drive at is when we go at pastors the best way that we can encourage them to preach or teach from the front about these kinds of subjects is to help build a a trustworthy, consistent, um, gospel-centered team really underneath them and, and underneath the church that can help deal with the fallout, repercussions, ramifications of such an emphasis. Now this is something we're very used to in other places in church culture, for example, missions. Now I know churches are all different when they how they deal with missions, but in, in a lot of churches you'll find a missions committee, right? Maybe a local missions right. committee, maybe a full missions committee. In, in the church where I'm on staff, we have a fantastic world missions committee, and we're gearing up for all kinds of focus on missions in the next couple of weeks. And you'll hear about it from the pulpit, you'll hear about it in Sunday school, every the whole entire church. Church schedule is rearranged for two weeks to focus on missions. The point is, is that the pastor, if that church is free to preach about missions, because he has a trustworthy, multifaceted, capable team of people that is developing and building a structure, a discipleship, a counseling, a mentoring, equipping. Um, machine isn't the right word, but structure underneath him and in the church so that the church can actually address these issues. Because just mentioning it from the pulpit is not addressing the issue. It's part of addressing an issue. So where a lot of folks fall down, I think, in the life arena is that they go to the pastor and they have a reductionistic or a simplistic approach and saying, well, if I could just get my pastor to preach about this issue – you know i'd hit i'll hit a home run it's a home run
0: mm-hmm.
5: well um you know I wouldn't say it's a home run I wouldn't say it's it's a strikeout either. I'd say it's maybe first base, but there's a lot of other bases to cover and and that's why actually we we started churches for life because we we fill that missing gap of helping helping churches develop a gospel centered trustworthy consistent multifaceted uh, life team that can support and assist the pastor and the whole church to develop uh, a ministry in that church that's as trusted and, and uh, mainstream and robust and active as any other mainstream, robust, active ministry in that church. In fact, if you think of any ministry in any church that uh, permeates the culture of that church, it could be a women's ministry, it could be VBS, it could be missions, it could be mercy ministry of some kind. Every ministry that, that uh, pervades the culture of a church has at least some sort of a team, a trustworthy team, underneath it. The pastor may be passionate about that subject, but still, it's going to require a team of people working with the pastor to, to help the church have a culture of missions or of women's ministry, or of the sanctity of human life. So that's where we focus.
2: So how does a church, my next question, how does a church become a church, a part of Churches for Life?
5: Well, that is a great question, too. And, uh, I mean, there's a a bunch of different ways, you know, to begin that process, but uh, I guess probably the best way is that we we believe one of our core values is uh, we're relationally centered. We believe all ministry flows from relationships. So where that would start for anybody listening would be for you to go to our website, getintolife.org, and to read up on us and and see, you know, who we are and what we're about, and then contact us. You can contact uh, me at Doug at getintolife.org. I'm the president and founder and CEO of the ministry. We have a great assistant and a board and so on, but I'd be happy to, to talk with you and then kind of direct you through is some of the basic fundamentals of how and what this model looks like. And then depending whether you're in St. Louis, which is where we're headquartered, I can you know, personally walk with you through what we call a life team roadmap, building an actual life team in your church, you can do that here in St. Louis, or if you live outside of St. Louis and you're listening to this, we have um, we have what we call a toolbox of video and DVD and curricula and so on that are useful um, to build a life team in your church. The real the real um, center of our ministry is seeing a gospel centered, consistent, trustworthy, unified resource a life team built in a church. That's what we do. We, we build life teams. And so the way to begin that process is by going to our website or contacting me and actually just realizing, huh, you know what? Um, I really do see now that if I want to see life issues become part of the, the culture of our church, which is what it's going to take, quite frankly, to see church cultures change and see our our water culture change. Once you see that it's a team that's necessary, well, here we are. Churches for Life is here to help you build a team. That's what we exist to do.
2: Excellent. So So what –
5: oh, go ahead. Well, and so it's a process to build a team. And, uh, you know, it's not a microwave process either. It takes a while for, you know, you to have a leader – you have, have a person in leadership that is uh, trusted by your church leadership, and that person gets trained and they get certified, actually. See, what we've done in our ministry is we've elevated your you know, your stereotypical pro-life ministry in a church from the passionate individual or the fire-breathing individual or the sidelined, <laughs> angry individual who just can't get any traction We've elevated and changed that entire complexion to building a ministry that is a group of people, it's a team that's trusted, and it's actually as mainstream in the church as any other mainstream ministry is in the church. And that takes time to build that. That does not happen overnight. Usually it takes between 6 to 12 months to build a life team in a church. And then that team begins...
2: Oh, go ahead. I, I wanted to ask after that um, to describe what the life team is uh, is is like. What kind of the what kind of individuals that you're trying to mold into a good leader within a life team from the sidelined, upset, and uh, ineffective pro-lifer in church. I I, I, right. I chuckled at that. I chuckled at that because I can see it. I can totally see it. Not me, of course. No, no,
5: not you (laughs) Well I can't resist I'm going to give you one little coaching snippet And I know this is going to make over like a lead balloon But I'm going to say it anyway Because I I say it all the time And it's just a good teachable moment And it's this idea of using the phrase pro-life Now in our experience In churches And in culture And this is a fun experiment to do An interesting experiment Approach ten people that you don't know and don't know you in your church next Sunday. And don't scare them, but just say, hey, I have a question to ask you. And say, when I say the word pro-life, what do you think of? And wait for them to respond. Now, you can do that in the church or you, with people you know you know are Christians in the church. Or you can do it in the shopping mall. Of course, you want to be super careful in the shopping mall if <laughs> you do that. But the point is, is that in our experience, the word pro-life, if, if we use that word when we think about this ministry, in our experience, it does nothing but hurt us. Because most people in our experience, and again, I say in our experience, when we ask them, when you, when you hear the word pro-life, what do you think about? Mm-hmm. I mean, let me ask you, Letitia, what do you think most people think about when they hear the word pro-life? Do well, They well, think they think experience- good things...
2: Uh, so it really depends on what on the person and and how i guess how generous they feel that day, but if I were to take the more cynical uh, person that I would come across, uh, they would probably say very judgmental and un un uh, inflexible not unfriendly but inflexible judgmental and inflexible
5: right yeah, and I would agree and I would actually say you know i would I would say if you just chose ten, you know, average random people, because most people aren't like you and me. We, we wake up thinking about this stuff, right? We talk about it on the Internet. We write about it. Our, it's a big part of our lives. But most people, most Christians, they don't think about this stuff. And I'm not throwing a rock at them for that. I'm just saying they just don't think about it. So, sure. so my point is, is that if I stood up in your church or any other church, and I, I had a grand introduction by your pastor and said, hey, he said, hey, everybody, I want to introduce Doug Murkey from Churches for Life. Uh, he, he has a wonderful announcement. I'm excited for him to talk to you today. Hit it, Doug. And I stand up in the mic and I say, hello, everybody. I am here to help you start a pro-life ministry. Now, what do you think most of the people in that congregation think that I am here to help you start?
2: Uh, a very judgmental and condem- condemning preaching ministry, quote-unquote ministry, uh, that makes women feel awful about the choice they have done, you know, made if they've had an abortion. I think that's what right. a lot of people would assume.
5: Right. And so, you know, obviously some people would not think that, but in our experience most people would think that. And if you happen to be a woman who had an abortion and had never had a, a positive experience with a life-affirming person, you may just crumple up into a ball and slide under the pew. I didn't say anything condemning, didn't I? Did I? I mean, all I said was, we're starting a pro-life ministry, but the problem is, is that words are invested with meaning. And so my background, my education, my undergrad, my corporate experiences in marketing,
0: And,
5: and I know very, very, very well that words are invested with meaning. So one of the most basic fundamental principles we teach people as they begin to love their pastor and serve their church is to replace the term pro-life with other terms that we have the ability to define and so sidestep all the baggage that the word pro-life means. So, you know, the way I like to think about it is, and and this is quite a journey, it took me quite a while to adjust myself to this form of thinking, but I do know that when I go in to meet a pastor or a, you know, an average person if I use the word pro-life, I envision a, a Southwestern Airlines baggage train pulling up between me and that person. And that baggage train is loaded with all the negative stereotypical baggage that have been invested in the word pro-life. And now instead of having an open bridge to that person that I want to serve and love, I have to go backtrack and try to haul all that baggage off of that train and remove the train before I can... be you know, begin to build that relationship. So I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I did want to bring it up as just a fundamental, you know, understanding. Because if I went to your pastor or any pastor, and in our meeting I said, hi, I'm pro-life and I want to start a pro-life ministry. 9.5 out of 10 times that pastor is thinking in his brain at that moment, this guy wants to build a fire-breathing, politically active, hornet's nest, in my church to make people who are broken feel more guilty and awful, and who knows what else he's going to do. Now, I know I'm being stereotypical. Not all pastors think that. But in our experience, it's just not helpful to use that term, especially when dealing with pastors and people in churches. So I don't want to camp on it. I'm just going to let it lay there, and your listeners can, can wrestle with it and just kind of think about it. Just kind right. of think about it. Right. So where's
2: the where's the way out? Where's the way out? I, I need the to I need to at least have the way out for today.
5: Oh, I agree. Yes, and I you know <laughs> I agree. Well, I mean I think obviously the first stage in the way out is um, just soaking in the gospel. We're extremely gospel centered in our ministry, and, and uh, uh, this is more than just a semantic kind of pietistic exercise. Say, Whoa, go back to the gospel it actually is really, 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 really important that those of us who are laboring to serve Christ's bride, the church, um, that was bought in the gospel, that we're soaking in that glorious gospel, because that will change our posture and attitude as we go about the work. All of scripture is just, it's just brimming with this idea that God's people Do whatever they do out of the joy and gratitude we've experienced for being forgiven our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. That has to be at the forefront of our minds. So then, when we go into whatever meeting it is, whatever email we're writing, whatever phone call we're making, um, we go into it with a gospel-saturated mindset, not from a pietistic, you know, sanctimonious, rock-throwing "I have the truth, and why don't you get it" attitude. It just changes our whole posture. From there, I would just recommend, you know, to folks that, you know, they think about this idea of, of starting a life team, and there's a roadmap that we have uh, in our ministry and can find it on our website and can, you know, contact us to kind of get that process started. And it begins with, you know, starting that relationship with the pastor or other church leader about, um, you know, the gospel and the issues we've already talked about, and then offering this idea, this solution of, hey, what would it be like if we had a team here that you trusted, Mr. Pastor, you and the staff trusted, that was a, a welcomed, celebrated, mainstream part of our church culture that could help us as a church enjoy the gospel and live it out toward people that are you know, in, in the most awful and horrific peril. And in all kinds of related ways, and um, it just takes time to do that.
2: Well, wonderful! You have an event coming up at the beginning of the first week of the month next next month. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
5: Yes, I am super excited about it. It's called the uh, the Life Team Summit, and all the things I've just talked about in our in our conversation are going to be you know permeating this entire a little more than a half-day summit here in St. Louis, and I would want to invite anybody listening, even if you're out of state, to come, because what this summit is about is three things. It is for um, folks who are weary and tired and are frustrated in how to equip their church to champion life. It's for life teams that already exist. These are teams that uh, we've personally, God's planted through us, started in churches It's for pastors, it's for lay people, it's for men and women, it's for people of all ages to come and to receive three things. Number one, plain old encouragement in the gospel. Our main encouragement is not in the decrease in the numbers of abortions, although that is definitely good. Our main encouragement is not in um, new legislation, although that's definitely good. Our main encouragement as Christians is in rehearing the gospel. All your sins have been wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's given you his righteousness. That is real refreshment, and we're going to focus on that as number one. We'll do that together in creative and joyful ways. Number two, we're going to have actual life team leaders and people who are experiencing traction and fruit in life-affirming ministry Stand up in our large group sessions and just basically share. Hey, here's what God's doing in our church. Here are the great things that He's um, He's helping us grow in our ability to live as rescued rescuers. We had a diaper drive here. We're helping women that have had miscarriages over here. We're helping train people to pray out front of an abortion clinic over here. We're um, He's He's helping train men and women to counsel men and women in crisis pregnancies over here. We're we're training older adults in how to um, approach end of life decisions, like choosing a nursing home and so on. So these these team leaders are going to report on what God's doing. And last year when we did this, that part of the the refresh summit was incredibly encouraging. And then the third component of the summit is actual workshops, little breakout sessions, and those breakout sessions cover a number of different different extremely practical. Uh, topical areas where champions of life and life teams can attend and get some real practical help in how to do ministry in their church. For example, uh, oh, by the way, these workshops are being taught by pastors. They're being taught by life teams. They're taught by other ministry specialists. Um, So these are actual, not just theorists, but they're practitioners of ministry. So, for example, the uh, life team at Central Presbyterian Church is doing a workshop on adoption and how they, how they help their church focus on living as adopted adopters uh, for in a month-long focus. They're going to explain how they, how they grew and navigated that journey in their church. Fantastic uh, effort that they put together. They're going to share that. A couple of life teams and a pastor are coming together to talk about how they put together a multifaceted Sunday school series in their church. You know, a three-month series. So every Sunday they, they dealt with a different topic of the life arena, whether it's sexual integrity or infertility or bioethics or abortion or crisis pregnancy or adoption or foster care or end-of-life or medical technology. How do you put together a Sunday school series like that? Uh, we have another speaker, Barb Quigley, is going to talk about bioethics and how do you help your church understand the bioethical decisions that we're being faced with uh, in our culture and make biblical decisions. Um, you know, there's a, number, there's a number of workshops. Some teams are going to talk about, well, we have a speaker, Dr. Whipple, who is a, a, an elder in a, in a church and also a surgeon at Barnes Hospital, is going to talk about the moral implications of Obamacare. But it's not just going to be kind of theoretical. Hey, here are the facts about the moral implications of this law. But it's also going to be now. Here, here are some ways that, as a life team, you can equip your church to respond in gospel-centered, grace and truth-balanced ways to um, the the contents of this law. We'll even another workshop to help. How do you equip students? How do you equip students in your church to make Biblical, godly, life-affirming decisions when it comes to relationships, sexuality, pregnancy, and so on. So I, I'm just super, super excited about all three aspects of this summit. And I would, I would uh, just warmly and enthusiastically invite anybody listening to get to St. Louis on March 8th to get to the summit. I, there's nothing like it on the face of the earth. I, I mean, and I really believe it. This is going to be Fantastic.
2: That's- it does sound fantastic. How, does, how do these people register, and um, how long is it, first of all? How, is it a whole-day uh, event or an evening or two days?
5: Great question. Yes, it is um, a little more than half a day. It's from, it starts at 8 a.m. on Saturday, March eighth, and we end by 3 p.m. on that same day. So it's, it's less okay. than a full day. And uh, it's very inexpensive. If you register before February 28th, it's only $25 per person. That includes paying for your lunch and uh, continental breakfast and all your materials. Um, Pastors and existing life team leaders and students uh, have a special rate of only $15. So it's really cost-effective. And you register. It's easy. You go to getintolife.org. That's our website, getintolife.org. And right on the home page, you'll see a logo in the top right. It says, Refresh Life Team Summit. Click on that logo. You can read about the summit there. You can um, look at the workshops, and you can actually register and pay for the workshop there. So that's what I encourage you to do.
2: Sounds awesome. Count me in. I, I plan on going. That sounds like something that would be extremely enjoyable and educational to attend.
5: Yeah, I I mean, I tell you, we did it for the first time last year, and uh, we're looking to see a lot more people there this year. But even the first year, we had 75 people, and most of those were on life teams. And just to see that God is alive, that he's active, he is working in churches. He is doing great things in churches through life teams especially. And to hear these testimonies and to meet people and interact with people who love the church and love the gospel, and also love the life arena. It is a fantastic combination. So, I mean, you can tell. I'm obviously excited, and I would love to see you there.
2: All right. Well, do you have a moment to take one more question? We have a caller on the line. Hey, Randy. Hey, Randy. Hello. Hey, did you have a question for our guest today, Doug, Murphy?
4: Well, I was just intrigued by this overarching ministry coming just from the gospel, how the gospel just is the basis for life and rescue. Those are really important terms. My question is, um, with all that's happening uh, in the world, and Christians want to, to deal with every facet of what the gospel means, you know, life, rescue, uh, salvation, redemption, um, How does a a Christian sort it all out? Um, You can be pro-life, but then you're interested in other topics. How do you sort all of this out and and find a direction you should be going in?
5: Wow, Randy, that is a great question. And uh, how much time do you have, brother? (laughs) (laughs) Answer that question in three minutes or less.
4: (laughs) Because uh, I, I, we all have our, our, our subjects of interest With me, my subject is human rights to And I, I think of rescue And I think of what you use the term rescue I think of my friends there um, How do you sort all those issues out? Because you want to address uh, those important life issues What would be the best way A Christian who's really praying and thinking How I can sort this out What would you recommend?
5: Yeah, I love it I love it And I love how, first of all, the main, the main compulsion is... Uh, you test yourself first of all, and 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 check and see why am I compelled or interested in this issue? And the healthiest uh, and best way to know what's dri- that it's God driving an interest is that it's gospel centered and gospel driven. And um, you know that can be a hard thing to discern. But I know for my myself, for example, when I first was interested in life issues, I was very driven by anger. And uh, anger doesn't work too well as a motive. It's not something that God holds up as a motive. So first of all, just kind of say, is this related to the gospel? And really, uh, in asking that question, a, a lot of things are related to the gospel because the gospel is the is the comprehensive message of human flourishing in every way. I mean, you could you could work on on um, on crops and how to how to increase the the yield of crops—that's a gospel issue. You could preach the gospel itself for salvation. That's a gospel issue. You could you could work on drinking water in deserts for people that haven't. That's a gospel issue. So, first of all, gospel and connecting what you're passionate about with the gospel. Second thing I would look at would be what are your spiritual gifts. And um, you know, God obviously designed each one of us for a purpose. And we need to be careful that, um, you know, we're being and stewarding our lives in ways that are consistent with the purpose for which he's designed us. I do run into this sometimes in, in uh, parachurch ministries where a person has a tremendous passion for a specific topic, but they, they have no gifts in leadership. And so they start a ministry and it just kind of putters along until it eventually dies a frustrating death. So I would say as you, you know, look at your spiritual gifts, you're looking at abilities that God's given you, and that will indicate, you know, maybe how you employ your passion. So, for example, if you're passionate about abortion and life issues, but you don't necessarily have gifts of leadership or administration, but you definitely have a gift for for prayer and intercession, well, that will inform how you express your passion for the life arena as, as a someone who prays and maybe participates in prayer with others. You don't necessarily have to start a new thing. Some people, when they look at their giftedness, they say, wow, you know, God's given me the gift of giving, which in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, really has to do with material-type giving. And so, you know, you may be able to express your passion for the sanctity of life by giving to life-affirming agencies finances or buying boxes of diapers and bringing them to a local pregnancy center or you know funding um, churches for life or any number of other ways so I look at passions and then I would think for you know as you develop those passions uh, and look at these needs out there asking mentors is always a wonderful way to help inform Kind of, God, what is it you want me to do? When we started Churches for Life, uh, almost for an entire year, 2007, I spent writing a business and ministry plan for this ministry. And that's based on my seminary training and my undergrad training in marketing and business. I wanted to really think through, what would this look like and how would I do it? And that plan was 47 pages long. It included pro forma statements, financials, and so on. But that didn't mean that I was going to do it. I then gave the plan to several mentors who knew me very well. Men and women who, you know, knew about my gifts and talents and knew about the need. And I said, here's the plan. Read it and give me your honest feedback. And one by one, every single one of them, you know, gave me some pros and cons. But at the end of the day, they said, Doug, there is no doubt in my mind that God has equipped you – and has given you this, this structure, this idea To begin this ministry to address this issue In this way I didn't start a prayer ministry I started, you know, God started Churches for Life Me So that's a very short, very short answer Because your, your question really is How do you articulate your call to ministry? Which is an essential
4: essential question A very good question yeah, because there's lots of people, I'm sure, that we all want to passionately serve Jesus, and I think you articulated that well, especially as, um sometimes we're quick to begin something when really we should just be a participant with others in it, and then also getting good godly counsel. That's really important, too, so I think that that's a good answer. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. So there you have it in, in under eight minutes. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you. thank you, Randy, and um, thank you, Doug, for coming on uh Life Fridays. I really appreciate you giving us your time and uh, sharing so much information with us and so much good perspective. I think uh, we all need to hear from a pastor's point of view, uh, because m- most of us who are involved are, are not pastors. I mean, there just are not as many pastors out um, speaking out about this as, as there are the rest of us, and we need to hear that perspective, how to approach your pastor, how to approach your church, how to begin talking. And it is a process. I think all of us need to remember uh, that we need to start somewhere, and it can't be uh, a full-blown conf- confrontation. Um, and we need to understand uh, how, how a pastor sees himself uh, in the position of the church. I think it was particularly yeah, I completely...
5: helpful. I agree. It's just a real pleasure to be on with you, Leticia. I, I thanks so much. And again, I would only say, you know, thank God that He sent His only Son to live, die, and rise to rescue sinners like us. Thank God for Jesus and the gospel.
2: Amen. And also,
5: also, just again, let me extend a welcome and invitation to anybody listening to come to the summit. Uh, I, I'm certain that you'll find it refreshing, rejuvenating, encouraging, and uh, you'll leave with some things that you can really take to heart and maybe even employ as you as you continue on this journey with God.
2: Amen. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'll be talking to you soon, then. Okay, Summit. that sounds good. All right. Have a good night. Thank you so much.
5: You too. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. All right, everybody, uh, that was awesome. I have not heard a, a pastor articulate this in such a passionate and careful way. I think we have, I definitely learned a lot uh, from his yeah. perspective. From, mm-hmm. And I want to uh, move on to a little something that uh, we talked about last week. This was last week's stupidest thing ever. And it's going to be this week's, a uh, little commentary on this, this was Anderson Cooper uh, talking with both Jack Hanna and some other, uh, I guess, a, zoo, a zookeeper or a zoo animal expert about the huge controversy surrounding the giraffe in a zoo in Denmark that had been killed for food mm-hmm. to feed to lions. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, and apparently, Anderson Cooper had a big big personal problem with that so let me play this clip and let me see if how many of us can pick out exactly what was it that caught my attention in particular you risk
1: it going to what we would call a substandard place and then it will live there for could live there for 15 20 years on substandard conditions and that would be suffering for 20 years and that's not a way to work with animals
6: But but doesn't
4: the life of the animal itself have some value rather than just it being part of your breeding program? What he seems to be saying is that the animal itself doesn't really have any right to live, or the animal itself, there's no inherent value in the animal living out its natural life, which just seems odd. It just seems odd that there's no sense from this guy that the animal itself... The, the life of the animal actually matters. It's just a product in the breeding program. God put that creature on earth for a certain reason. It teaches responsibility. And it teaches love. That's what the zoological world does. I know you. This zoo, you know, wants to keep keep a stock going and wants to attract people. But at a certain point, the yes. animals themselves should have some right to actually having a life. Wow.
2: Oh. Whoa. Wow. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Wow. So i i wanted to ask if i I'll, i wanted to ask about this dialogue. If we switch all the mm-hmm. words instead of the word animal, we put mm-hmm. in unborn baby human being, mm-hmm. or the words unborn baby human being, would this not be the pro life argument against abortion? Absolutely. Yeah, he just made our he just made our case uh, for it. He us. did. Uh-huh. He did. And I was flabbergasted when I heard this for the first time, uh, that he would he would make such a very clear cut case for valuing this giraffe's mm-hmm. life. This baby giraffe, mind you, a baby giraffe. Valuing mm-hmm. the baby giraffe's life just because of what it is. Does, mm-hmm. Ask the question, does it not have inherent value? Does it not have a right to life just for being what it is? And that, those are the same questions we as pro-life advocates ask of Anderson Cooper about mm-hmm. human life. Now, what I don't get is where that bridge doesn't go all the way from one side of the river bank to the other side of the river bank, why he doesn't make that connection, that the, all the questions that he just asked and how he's assuming that there is intrinsic value to a baby giraffe. He doesn't apply that to baby humans.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In, but he's not alone. He's not alone, though, because not only do uh, is there a whole population of those that consider themselves pro-choice or pro-abortion, not value the life of the unborn, we have an entire country called Belgium that just legalized euthanasia for children with uh, life-threatening illnesses or disabilities or whatever, kind of like Mm. uh, the uh, bill that we talked about back in November, whatever that child Mm. or the doctor of that child uh, deems is something that that child should be euthanized over. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is just taking it a step further. And uh, not surprisingly, but surprisingly, Anderson Cooper doesn't have much to say about that. Just an observation. Yeah, it's, it's almost, you know, just as we were talking to our guests, um, I think it are really does to show that there, there's just a spiritual blindness when it comes to this issue um, of, of human life. Um, because you can use the exact same arguments for an animal and yet not see the hypocrisy in your position. Um, when you're making the same case that we make, <laughs> but only for those, for yeah. I mean you know, it's um, it there's definitely a spiritual, um, blinding um by by the enemy um, who who hates life and is using um their own contradiction to um, continue the pro-death agenda. Absolutely, and I look at the situation that's happening, this legalization of euthanasia for children in Belgium, as a very sad end a very poor philosophy because I look at the people you know one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter and Facebook and whatever social media is uh, Nick Wojciechik now we've talked Mm -hmm. about Nick Wojciechik on this program before he is the I guess for lack of a better word he's an evangelist but he's most known for being an Pro, uh, uh, motivational speaker That's what I'm getting at Motivational speaker And the man was born Without arms or legs yeah. And we talked about him last week too He was born without <coughs> arms or legs And at about age 8 He had gone through A time in his life Where he wanted to commit suicide Understandably Right Right Mm-hmm. You're at that age where you're self aware. You're fully self aware of your your disabilities and the implications, and your your outlook on life doesn't look really good, given the fact that you don't have arms and legs. And so mm-hmm. he had gone through a point when he was a child. He wanted to die.
6: Mm.
2: You know, thank God he wasn't Belgian. Right today. Because he would have found a doctor who would say, oh, yeah, you are missing arms and legs. Your your life will never be as fulfilling as a person with arms and legs is going to be. You might as well take the lethal injection or the pill or the hemlock or whatever and put yourselves in an early grave so you'll never have to suffer another day in your life. And I'm seen yeah, a smiley face on this, by the way, I've already yeah, you know, and, I'm seeing the nicest thing I can yeah. think of a doctor would say. Right. And you know it's so ironic because, um, as you know, Nick just celebrated or they he and his he's married and he and his wife just celebrated the one year birth of their son and here he is, um, giving life, um, and, and creating life and having a son and um, I just, I think it's so sad. I think it's sad that um, how life is so devalued to the point uh, where we see um, its value in terms of one's abilities um, as opposed to just their, their intrinsic value. But um, Nick, is, he's such an inspiration to so many. And um, it, it is, I mean, Belgium is, I just, I don't think Belgium is that far from where we are. I, I get every day as i as i look at the news and i read what's happening and um i just don't think we're that far behind and people may say that could never happen here but um we're we're just progressively and progressively you know we're on the slope i i don't say that anymore about anything as in oh, could never happen here um because i've heard that about so many different things uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. even have to do deal with pro-life issues, it's just other things. So many other things that might be tied to po- political issue or not. And a lot of people say X will never happen here, and it does. I don't think we can take anything for granted in this country anymore. I really don't. Mhm. Yeah, I don't uh, either. It's just um, <clears throat> it's it's interesting that 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 the Belgium story and the euthanasia laws has been very uh it just kinda of snuck in and no one has uh made any noise about her from the media from the mainstream media right. anyway. Now we're talking about baby humans, little humans wanting right. to die. I wanna know Anderson Cooper. Should we feed them to lions too? Right. I think I I think he might have a little trouble reconciling the fact that he places an intrinsic value on a baby giraffe but doesn't place the same value on a child, Um, and in a country that's legalized euthanasia, I haven't heard him quite express the same amount of objection to that Mm
3: -hmm. as he has
2: the little giraffe incident. Now, before anybody goes off on me and sends me hate mail, that's hate, H-A-T-E, mail, M-A-L-E, at truelifefridaysradio.com if you want to send me a note. Um, I haven't said that the giraffe doesn't deserve to live. I'm just making a comparison that Anderson Cooper and a lot of liberal news personalities like him are failing to be consistent. If Mm -hmm. we're going to value a baby animal, for just being that animal and not chopping it up and feeding it to lions, mm-hmm. then why don't we afford the same type of value to human beings? I think that's the least that we can ask from liberals is to be consistent. I don't know; maybe it is a little too much to ask. I really don't know. I think I think <laughs> it is. Unfortunately, it's <laughs> not gonna. It seems like it's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, given that we have the st- it's time for the stupidest thing ever. And uh, Letitia? somebody has what? Don't interrupt me Letitia? now. We've gotten the whole show, and you haven't interrupted me. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, Thomas? Well, you know,
3: you know, my uh, sayings are timed for strategic points especially in light of what you just said about Anderson Cooper's lack of utter disregard for human life. You know, he values the life of a baby giraffe over that of a baby human being. But So it brought to mind a very interesting question. Would Anderson Cooper and all these other liberals put more value on human life if it was them that was about to be cut up and fed to the lions?
2: I think they would put a value on their own life. But like I said, exactly. the question is can they be, can they be consistent in applying no, that value to everybody? Exactly, and that was that was my whole point. And, folks, my
3: point was just to show the utter and sheer hypocrisy of, of those who call themselves enlightened and progressively aware. Well, the only thing that you're progressively aware of is just how intolerant you actually are. And that's my statement of the day.
2: Good word. And now for the stupidest thing ever, guess how many times? The I'm not going to talk about I'm not a race baiter. Al Sharpton talked about race in 2013. Somebody recorded 314 times, and they recorded it in three minutes. You're just going to hear a portion of that.
6: We're pulling the race card. Race, 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 race,
2: And that's not all, because he goes on.
6: Not a racist thing to do. Racist, racist, racially, 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 Racism, 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 coded racism, 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 racism. That's right, racism.
2: That's right, and that's all, folks.
3: Wow. Come back next
2: Friday for more Pro Life Fridays
3: radio. Oh wow. My head hurts from that one.
2: <laughs> There's three minutes think? worth on YouTube if you want to find out more.
3: No. You, uh, I want to comment on the stupidest thing of the day before we uh, end, and that is this. As someone who all three of us have known racism in our lives because of our um, different backgrounds, But as someone, myself, who have had three family members personally murdered because of the color of their skin, I get irritated when I hear an individual like that throwing out the word racism when he wouldn't really know racism if it smacked him in his face. Al Sharpton got (laughs) his right. He's
2: fabricate his type of racism.
3: Right. He got his rise because he rode on the coattails of the true great civil rights leaders from the 1960s. He's a coward, and that's all he is. And I refuse to continue to let individuals like that called individuals like me, Letitia, and Melissa, who don't play the race card. But when racism is, is actually in existence, Case in point, the actions of the individual in Florida who shot the kid was racist. The verdict of the jury was not because the man is being retried. So to all you individuals who instead of focusing on the life lost, you wanted to turn it into a racial issue, the man's actions Mm -hmm. were racist. That was determined. But don't turn around and call the jury racist just because they were following instructions because you cheapened the life that was
0: lost.
2: Word, back next Friday. Good night to everybody.
0: Good night. Good night.